Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join our preacher for the message. Amen. Good morning, church. It's so great to see you kind of at a distance a bit, but so glad to be here. Again, my name is Pastor Frank, and locally here, I'm a pastor And it is an honor, really, for me to be with you today and to open God's Word and to study God's Word together. But before we do that, let me just share a word about how special you are. I I know that you realize this, but let me just highlight it because this is so significant. The body of Christ is actually the bride of Christ. You are loved and cherished by God. And in particular, each each different celebration there at, at at Christ Community Church and at all of the churches, man, God is building his church. He's protecting his church. He's the one who builds it, protects it, serves it, and helps it grow. And as you know, we study together, we sing together, but ultimately our faith and our anchor is God himself, is Christ himself. And as we gather this morning together, be encouraged, friends, that no matter what's happening around us, uh, God sees, God hears, and God acts on behalf of his children simply out of love and his grace and his mercy. So just be encouraged because you are cherished by Almighty God. As we start today, um, let's jump into our Bible study with just a moment of prayer for each of us this morning. Um, Father, thank you so much for the time that we gather together in your name. Lord, as we open your word, as we are challenged by your word, as we are stretched by your word, I pray, Lord, that you would begin to do in us the work that only you can do. May today help us just for these next moments set aside some of the distractions and some of the difficulties and trust in the good things that you've told us and are telling us through your word. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you for loving us the way you do. We ask all of these things simply out of your love for us and we ask it in the precious and beautiful name of Jesus. Thank you for joining me in that. And has there ever been a time in your life where you've been without struggle? So if you can think of a week, a season, maybe a time where, where everything has gone well, right? Where everything has gone the way you think it should go, where, man, there was like smooth sailing. Man, the boss was great that week. Your kids all behaved. They, they like made their bed and they did the dishes. Man, you even had enough toilet paper for the whole week. Little things like that. Has there ever been a season where you have had no difficulty, no struggle, no concerns of any kind? And perhaps there has been, but it doesn't matter who. And it doesn't matter where, struggle and adversity and suffering is unavoidable. It's inescapable. I mean, life assumes it. I mean, I know most of you have heard the the famous adage that there are only two things certain in life, right? Death and taxes. Well, that may be true, but I would like to add a third one to that today. Suffering. Adversity. This is life. And the letter of James, where we're going to be spending our time together this morning, is from a pastor who's writing to a a, a scattered group of people. He's writing to individuals that that are enduring hardship, that are are outside of Jerusalem, that are uh, afraid, they're struggling, they're suffering, and they're enduring hardship during this time. And that's where we're going to be studying James chapter 1. So as you make your way to James 1, grab your Bibles or open up your app find James chapter one. As you're doing that, we're going to build a little context because I would encourage you today as we study this passage and as you study any passage, 
in the scriptures or any book of the Bible. Um, context is king. You're going to want to understand who is saying what they're saying and to whom they're saying it. This is going to help you give a really depth to your study and understanding to what it is that God has said. So as we do that together, um, notice this. James, who we're talking about, this is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. So um, uh, this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God has inspired everything in the scriptures. All the writers of scriptures are inspired by God. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes and delivers one of the most practical books in all of the New Testament. I mean, here he skillfully offers a realistic instruction to the followers of Jesus everywhere. And in fact, some have called this, you could call this the how-to book of the Christian life. You see, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to grow in your faith. It's a call. It's a call to, to get wisdom. It's even a cry. It's a cry to live out the faith that you say you have. But you know what else it is? It's a signpost. It is a, a directional sign that reads this way, this way to life, this way to real joy, this way to, to profound peace. It's a directional sign especially for joy. And that's kind of where he begins here in chapter one. And honestly, joy is, is something that all of us seek. And so if you have children, you'll identify with this. And, and if you don't have children, you were a child at one point in your life. Um, we wanted always to have joy in the life of our kids. And I think we all do, right? Nuri and I have always wanted to, for them to have joyful memories. Uh, we always wanted to have days of joy in our home. And we worked to that end. We, we, I remember uh, my daughter was turning seven, so it was her seventh birthday party. And it, and it was great. We had, um, we had 32 seven-year-olds invade our three-bedroom home. Do you know what that's like? <laughs> well, all right, so maybe it wasn't 32, but it was a lot of seven-year-olds invaded our home. And I remember there was, uh, there was things everywhere. We had balloons everywhere. We had butterflies. We had all kinds of toys or little finger sandwiches for these seven-year-old girls. And there was this one um, pink scarf, this fluffy feathered pink scarf that one girl had. And I promise you, we were cleaning for days. I think Christmas came and we were finding pink feathers around the house, still cleaning after that party. And why were we doing that? All of that was for my daughter's joy, for her joy. That's why we did that. And there were days of discipline. So not only did you have the days of laughter and the days of encouragement and days of fun, but you had the days of discipline. And most of you guys know this too, right? My wife carried in the car, in the glove compartment of the car, she had a wooden spoon. I mean, we named the thing, right? And we had, it was for discipline on the go. <laughs> and some of you Cuban moms out there, you know you have an object in your vehicle right now to discipline your young ones. We had those kinds of things for discipline. Uh, we would tell our kids, man, man don't talk back or, or don't hit your sister or um, write down, I will not lie, 3,000 times, right? So we had these disciplines in place. What were they for? I mean, there were times where there would be some disaster going on in the bedroom, right? Some, some ruckus, some, they were creating some noise, some disaster, and I would, I would casually walk down the hallway, approach the bedroom, I would softly open the door, and I would give them the most intimidating look that I could muster, and I would take my belt off, and I would hang my belt on the doorknob of the bedroom door, and with their wide eyes in shock, tears welling up, they would look up at me, and softly I would tell them, I'll be back for this. <laughs> that usually was all it took, 
that usually was all it took to be able to get the kind of response that we wanted. But, but all of this, the disciplining and the joys and, and the good days and the hard days, all of this was for them. All of these things was to produce something in them. The end result of producing some discipline, which would be ultimately for their joy, even if they didn't quite understand it at the moment. For those of you that have young children, man, you're forming their character by the way you act, by the things you say, by how you treat them, by what you let you do. All of these things as a way of disciplining and growing something in those young minds and hearts. That's what it was for. I mean, my kids were six and eight at the time, and I was like 37. I was like almost 40, and I saw better what they needed. I, I understood beyond what they could comprehend what was best for them about how they should live, about how they should grow, about what they needed for their joy ultimately. And these, these happy experiences, these difficult struggles, these uh, painful learning experiences, what were they for? Again, they were to produce endurance. They were to produce perseverance and not just endurance and perseverance to get through that struggle or to get through the next difficult thing, but produce endurance and perseverance for the ability, for the staying power to, to get through all of the things that are coming in life and to grow their character so they would understand that there is a purpose, that there is a value, not only in the good things, but especially in the difficult things, especially in the times that we suffer. There's a value there. And this would be ultimately for their joy. And even now, my young adult kids that are, that are home, I said, listen, if, if you go that way, that's not going to end well for you. And, you know, sometimes they actually do listen. So that's great. But, but the, that difficulty, that struggle is going to produce something. That's the point here. And the book of James is just like that. Hey, guys, I mean, this way. Come, come this way for joy. Don't, don't do that. Do this. And this will be for your joy. This will be for your growth, for your maturity, for your growing in faith. This is the way that produces peace, that produces joy, these kinds of things. We're the seven-year-old. We're the seven-year-old, and God, our Heavenly Father, is saying that there's meaning here that you don't yet see and don't yet understand. That suffering, that struggle that you're in right now is going to produce something beautiful. Where struggle is, strength is found. Suffering results in strength. So meet me then, if you're in James chapter one, we're gonna go through the first four verses together, four short verses, but I promise you they're densely packed with truth. I'm gonna read the four verses, and then kind of we're gonna jump right back in. So if you're at James already, know this, that he opens this letter with these practical instructions by addressing their suffering and their joy. He's saying this, he's writing this to hurting people, that they're gonna find strength in their suffering. So look with me then, James chapter one, verse one. Count it all joy. No, that's verse two. That's verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right away in verse one, we get both the author and the audience. And we've spoken a little bit about the author already, but James begins with a, a very simplistic intro. 
a very humble bio, if you will. And that's a little surprising based on what we already know about James, isn't it? I mean, the humility is unexpected, but it is refreshing. You see, even Mark's gospel, the gospel writer Mark in chapter six tells us that James is the half brother of the Lord Jesus. And Acts chapter 15, later in the Bible, right after the Gospels, Acts 15 tells us that this very James is the leader of the Jerusalem church. So, so James is the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem church. And all right, let me just take a moment to help some of you with that, because yes, Jesus had brothers and sisters. In fact, Matthew's Gospel in chapter 13, verses 55 and 56, even gives us the names of his siblings. So Jesus, yes, born of the Virgin Mary from the Holy Spirit is the firstborn of Mary. And now Joseph and Mary had normal uh, marital relations after Jesus's birth that resulted in children. These are the half brothers of the Lord Jesus and they're named there for you in the gospel of Matthew chapter 13. Now, James was widely known. James was even widely admired throughout Jerusalem and throughout that area, so much so that he got a nickname. James was so righteous and his devotion to Jesus, so um, consistent in his practice of, of following and, and praising Jesus that they gave him a nickname. They called him James the Just. That's what he's known as. And I, and I got to be honest with you, you know, I, I probably would have started off the letter writing, this is James the Just. I mean, I would have started that way. Now, James is much too humble to do that. So he begins very inauspiciously even. Um, there's something happened to James. Something happened to him, a, a life-altering event, a, it changed everything for him. Because you see, James, growing up, didn't believe that, that, that his brother was deity. And, you know, that kind of makes sense, right? That kind of typical, because, you know, most of the time, we don't believe that our older siblings are God in the flesh, right? So James doesn't believe that his brother is uh, the Messiah. And in fact, not only James, but all of his siblings didn't believe when Jesus was alive, when Jesus walked the earth, when Jesus was growing up, they did not believe that he was the Messiah, that he was God in the flesh. Imagine having a brother. Imagine having an older brother who's, who's always perfect, who, who's super gifted, who can even stump the rabbis, and on top of it, he acted like God as well. Imagine that. During Jesus's three-year ministry, we get some evidence of this. We see that in Mark's gospel, chapter three, that um, the, his siblings at one point go to seize Jesus. They go to capture Jesus because they say in their words that he is out of his mind. So his own family, his own brothers and sisters thought he was crazy. Well, what could possibly change James' mind? What could possibly happen to alter James going from an unbeliever, from someone who doesn't believe in his own half-brother that he lived with, to believing so much so that it becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem? What happened? Would you think it was the Gospels? Or would you think that it might have been the resurrection? Well, absolutely, that's certainly it. The resurrection of Christ. He saw his brother dead and die on the cross, get entombed in the tomb, and then rise from the dead. That radically altered the life and the direction of James. And as we talk about the scriptures, by the way, as we look at all parts of the Bible, I mean, recognize this, that the life-changing power of this message is rooted in the fact that we are talking about the Messiah who has died for you, died on the cross, was put in the tomb, and then three days later, as the scriptures declare, as all of the writers of scripture would agree, was raised from the dead. I mean, this is the power. This is the gospel. This is the power of the message. And that message 
is what changed James's life. And again, so much so that he goes from unbeliever to the leader of the church in Jerusalem, to James the just. And not only that, but something more. Because not only did he become the leader of the church, not only did he become that kind of, of, of individual, but he was also martyred for that very truth that his half-brother, his older brother, was God in the flesh. I mean, some years later, in AD 62, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, they took James the Just. They dragged James the Just to the top of the temple, and they threw him off the temple. And James, having survived that fall, he sat up and began to pray to God to forgive them. And the Jewish historian Josephus writes some years later in AD 93, he writes that as James prayed, they clubbed him to death. A horrific death, no doubt. Why? For the truth. The truth that his big brother was really God in the flesh, was the promised Messiah. So it's little surprise that James would begin this letter with such a posture of humility, the servant of the Lord Jesus. That's James. That's the author. Now, what about the audience? Well, the audience that he's writing to, these are scattered believers. These are Jewish Christians living outside of Jerusalem, scattered in the, in the world and in, in society around them. Um, James chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, excuse me, kind of paints that picture and begins to tell us about the birth of the church. If you were to look in the beginning of Acts, you get the beginnings of Christendom. The church was born in Jerusalem at Pentecost. In fact, there in Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3, at Peter's sermon, 3,000 people get saved at the hearing of the word. And 3,000 people get baptized, by the way. And the miraculous hearings we see and bold stances we, we find there. And that leads to the first Christian murder. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, Stephen is martyred. He's stoned to death for declaring the gospel, for his belief in Jesus, for standing for Christ. And that stoning, that martyrdom leads to great persecution. That persecution leads to the scattering of the church. We see evidence in the book of Acts that um, only the only people that stayed in Jerusalem were the apostles. Everyone else, all the other Jewish believers were scattered into nearby villages, nearby towns outside of Jerusalem. And these are the followers that this book is written to. So understand, this is significant for us to understand, because as we read about suffering, as we read about joy, as we read about wisdom, as we read about things later in the book of James, to know that he's writing to people that understand suffering. He's writing to individuals that are experiencing pain and discomfort and disappointment. They're experiencing all those things as he's writing them. They get it. They understand it. And for us today, that many of us are in a position of difficulty. Many of us might be suffering, and it might be of varying degrees, but whether it's financial or job loss, whether it's struggle with wayward children or young children or, or uh, you know, job situation, whatever the struggle might be, all of us have that. So we can understand from the perspective of the author, James, who knows what it's like to suffer, who experienced suffering, died for it, writes to a people who understand suffering. That's important and helpful for us. These are believers outside of Jerusalem. They're displaced, and yes, they're suffering. And for us today, we can understand that. And if you're in that position specifically, then listen up, because the Bible is speaking to you. This gives us context for the crazy thing, seemingly um, irrational statement that James is about to make in verse 2. 
See, perhaps you need a word of encouragement today. Perhaps maybe even you need th that signpost that the book of James offers direction in times of difficulty. So stay with me then. Let's look at verse number two there in the book of James. It begins like this. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. That strikes me as odd. I hope it strikes you as odd too, because uh, James wastes little time when he launches into this uh, count it all joy when you face trials. It almost seems like an oxymoron. The difficulty's there, the trial's coming, but suck it up and be joyful, right? That sounds odd. Um, the NLT paints the picture a little clearer for us. The New Living Translation writes that verse in this way. It says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. When struggles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Because I got to tell you, there have been times in my life of struggling and difficulty where if you would have mentioned that verse to me, if you would have said, hey, man, just count it all joy, man, you would have had a, a really difficult reaction from me at that point. I would have reacted in some very strange ways, having that told to me at certain points in my life. These people that James is writing to are broken. They're beaten and, and, and they feel lost and they feel forgotten. Why would James seems so apathetic to their plight. Why would he? Well, on the surface, that would seem like that, wouldn't it? On the surface, it may sound that way, certainly to a culture like ours, certainly to a community and a culture like ours that we flee, we avoid discomfort, we flee irritation at all costs. We want nothing to do with struggle. We want nothing to do with suffering. We want nothing to do with the slightest irritation that could come upon us. We run from that, any discomfort, See, James here is not a masochist. He's not deranged. He's not some glutton for punishment. James here is looking at their trials. He's looking at their difficulty from the perspective of faith. He's looking at their current plight, their current situation from, from through the lens of the gospel, if you will, through the lens of understanding that a relationship with Jesus, there is hope, there is peace, there is ultimately joy in the difficulties that God allows in the life of his people. James is looking at their trial through that lens. And life looked at that way from the Christian worldview, from the worldview that there's value in your suffering, that there's value, that there's something that God produces through your struggle. Looking at life that way not only gets you from this moment to the next, not only builds a kind of hope in you and gets you from this struggle to the next struggle, not only that, but you understand that there is a value that God is growing in you, that there is a maturity that God is building you up to be more and more like him, to be more and more like his son, to understand that God produces something that only can be learned through times of suffering, when you look at life through this lens. And the Greek here for that word count, this is important. The, the, the original language would kind of give us some indication or give us exact indication really of what the author is trying to say. The Greek word here, hegeomai, is the, it gives us the sense of control. Hegeomai gives us the sense of command even, um, of, to think specifically about something, to have control over that particular situation. In other words, you choose. You can make a deliberate decision to think this way you can make a deliberate decision to look at life through that lens, the lens of faith, the lens of understanding that, that God is at work here. You may not see it, you may not feel it, you may not even like it, but God is at work in these moments. That is a refrain that's carried throughout the New Testament. 
And as you look at scripture, as you look specifically here, you see that, that this is possible. And it's not isolated, by the way. It's, it's replete through the New Testament. It's not isolated. In Acts chapter 16, there is a moment that we should all be familiar with. I mean, Acts 16, the faithful gospel writer Luke reports that the apostle Paul and his cohort, his traveling companion Silas, they were arrested, they were stripped, they were beaten with rods. Yeah, that's a bad day, right? That's, that's not a good day. And verse 23 of Acts 16 says this, when they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them into prison. I mean, they were put in the inner prison, by the way. They were chained to the floor in a filthy prison. Not a good day. And after all that, after, after the, the embarrassment of, of going through that, after the difficulty of getting, of getting beaten, after the embarrassment of being stripped, after all that, in the middle of the night, the scriptures say that Paul and Silas were singing. They were singing. In, in prison, in chains. Yeah, they were having a concert. It was like Night of Joy in Philippi, right? They were singing as, as, as if praising the Lord. That's what they were doing. And if, certainly the prisoners were listening. Certainly the guards were hearing this ruckus, what was going on. And that so pleased God, by the way, that as the author Kent Hughes in his commentary would write, that brought down the house. <laughs> Literally, the walls. It, it, there was an earthquake, and there was so. This was such an incredible scene that that not only were they freed, but in getting freed themselves, they saved the jailer's life physically and spiritually by the jailer coming to faith in Christ. Man, the jailer then washed their wounds, man, cooked them a meal. Uh, there was a baptism celebration. It was an amazing moment in the scriptures, and and I would encourage you if you haven't read Acts chapter sixteen. And when we're done here later today, sometime during the week, grab your Bible, grab your family, read Acts chapter 16 to see that incredible moment in the early church. And all of that to say that Paul and Silas chose to sing. They chose um, to express joy in the middle of their struggle. And like I said, it's everywhere. Peter does that in Acts chapter 5. Stephen does it in Acts chapter 7. Jesus does it. When he's on the cross, at the most difficult moments of his entire life, Jesus prays for the people that are crucifying him. In a moment of expressing thanks to God, in a moment of expressing trust in God's ultimate promise and God's ultimate control, Jesus prays for those that revile him and persecute him and are killing him at that moment. In the Gospel of John, we're promised. In this world, you will have trials, suffering, John chapter 16. And this is why James now writes in his book, he writes here, when you meet trials, notice with me, it's not if, it's when you meet them. And in part, what James would have his readers learn is that in times of trials, in times of suffering, um, these are not random occurrences. These are not glitches in an ungoverned universe. Um, there's purpose, intentionality, and value with these things that occur, that, that God allows into the life of a follower of his. And this is why I believe that the English Standard Version and the, even the New American Standard, the NASB, have it really, really crystal clear when they say, when they write, when you meet various trials. Some of the other translations say it a little differently. The King James and the New King James put fall into various trials. But this is not random. This is not undesigned. This is not uh, some you know, arbitrary experience. These are sufferings and experiences that God allows because they serve 
his purpose. And James also knows something we often miss, that these sufferings of all kind, they have value. Value. And that, that's not wishful thinking, I would remind you. That's not just pie in the sky wishful thinking. This is not pain for the sake of pain. It's not arbitrary or haphazard struggle. I mean, there is benefit. There's purpose. There's principles at work here that we do not yet see and oftentimes don't, don't know. All right. So, so let's just take a breath here for a moment because we've said a lot. And it's, I know it's heavy for some of us that are struggling at the moment. Let's take stock of where we are. We've said that, that you will encounter trials. They will be unpleasant, but they are not accidental. So don't freak out here. Don't, don't, don't freak out. I mean, God's plan is that in doing something for your faith, that this, this has value for your faith. There is value in the struggle. It's, it's like kale, right? Nobody eats kale because they like kale. They eat kale because there's some value there that you don't see, right? I want a Snickers bar, but kale has value. So there, it's, it's like that. There's a benefit that you don't yet see. You with me? Good, because that's verses three and four. So take a look at verse three in James chapter one with me as we move on. Verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Here's James' logic. This is his justification for verse two, right? So what if, just, just, just think with me, what, what if God said that the best way for you to know, the, the, the most impactful way, the greatest way to produce endurance, to produce faith, a firmness of your faith, what if the best way to do that was through trials? The original language here in verse 3 would also suggest something to us that we should know. This, the Greek word here for endurance, uh, for patience even, is a Greek word, hupomone. And that carries with it the exact sense. Some of your translations actually say patience and say endurance. This uh, original word gives us that, that in these trials, there's a, an endurance that is built up. Like an athlete who trains. Like whether you're a runner or an athlete and you train, you build up an endurance, a weightlifter. How does a weightlifter grow in strength? By building his strength, right? So there's an endurance that's built up. These sufferings, these trials that are coming anyway, in all shapes, sizes, and colors, they're coming. Those trials, those difficulties, they produce endurance. This hupomone, this staying power, if you will. The Bible shows us that our faith, uh, this endurance is, is like staying power that matures us, that grows us to get through the suffering, to get to the next one, but grows us to recognize that there's a greater thing at work here, that God is at work in that. That's what we begin to see. There's clear evidence that God has a great purpose in times of trials. And trials aren't pleasant. I mean, like, I don't have to say that to you. We, we know this, right? In fact, some of them are, they're downright unjust. They're unfair. They're undeserved. And this is one of the things that I love about the scriptures. What I love about the Bible is that we see characters of all kinds. We see the heroes and the heroines. We see all of them, and all of them are broken. Like, like every one of them struggle. So that gives me hope. That encourages me that even these people, some that were called the friend of God, the, the, the greatest servant of Israel, or, or the, the greatest names in the New Testament, these suffered and struggled. I mean, what was Abraham thinking on that three-day journey to sacrifice his son, Isaac, the son that he loved, the son of promise, 
the son that God gave him. What was he thinking? How great a trial was that? And, and what, about, what about Joseph? What was going through Joseph's mind in the Old Testament when, when he was helpless against the power of his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, unfairly imprisoned in Egypt in a foreign land? What was going through that man's mind? What a trial. And now we get, we get to see something at the end of Joseph's story that Joseph didn't even know at the beginning. Remember those famous words of Joseph where he says to his brothers that sold him into slavery and mistreated him and lied to their father about him. He says to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God was at work doing something good of value, of preeminent value in the struggles that Joseph was experiencing. And it doesn't stop there. I mean, how many times does Paul have to be beaten and bitten and drowned before the man catches a break? Like how long, how many times? God was at work in Paul's pain and in Paul's suffering. He was at work there. All of them tried and tested. All of them, their faith was stretched and strengthened. And here lies one of the great purposes of this letter. Here lies one of the great purposes of the letter of James, that the believer's faith would be strengthened, would be, would be made to endure under the weight of the trials that are coming, that you would be more and more like the Savior who has died for you. I mean, this, this, these, these trials, these strengthenings, um, they're for our good. They're for our strength, right? And the testing is never pleasant, as we said. I mean, it's, it's like one irritation after another, one irritating thing, after another irritating thing, after yet another irritating thing. And we get some examples of this. I mean, about 15 years ago, there was this Filipino fisherman who made an incredible an unbelievable discovery in the sea just outside, just off the coast of the Philippines. This simple fisherman there in the Philippines found a two-foot pearl, two-foot pearl <laughs> inside of a giant clam. The pearl weighed 75 pounds. I think actually you may, you may, have, a, you may have a shot of that. You may have a picture of that actual pearl. It doesn't look like the pearl you kind of want to give your wife to wear around her neck, but it's a pearl nonetheless, and it weighs 75 pounds. Now, not really knowing what that was, not really knowing uh, what he had in his possession, this simple fisherman really, he took it home and he hid it under his bed. This 75-pound pearl was worth an estimated $100 million. That's a good day. <laughs> in some eyes, that would be a really good day. Um, Pearls are the only gems in the world, the only uh, stones of value, the only gems in the world to be born and grow inside of a living organism. Now, most of the time, yes, they're found in oysters. This one in particular was found in a clam, but pearls start off very innocently. They start off almost meekly, if you will. They start off, a pearl starts off as an irritation, as an inconvenience as something of discomfort for the oyster. See, when that tiny little bit of sand gets under the mantle of the shell of the oyster, it's, it's irritating, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable for the oyster. It's like, like a pebble in your shoe or, or an eyelash in your eye. It's like that. And, and what the oyster begins to do or what the clam begins to do is little by little, uh, this discomfort, they begin to, to cover over it with their own secretions, they begin to, to cover over it and, and, and secrete their, their, um, their 
uh, items on top of, uh, of this discomfort of this piece of sand over and over and over again. They encrust this piece of sand over and over and over. And thereby creating something of value and of beauty that was once an irritation and uncomfortable that bothered them. They, they make it a pearl. One author writes this and he says it beautifully. He says, man, a true pearl is simply a victory over irritation. Man, I, that makes great sense in light of what we're studying. You see, we run, we rebel, we hide, we, we push off, we scatter from, from the things that irritate us, from the slightest irritation, we run from that, but not the oyster. The oyster takes the irritation and turns it into something valuable, turns it into something of worth and value. And as testings and trials come into our life, as the difficulties mount, as the um, irritations of life go from day to day and they mount, man, that irritation and that, uh, that, that accompanies those trials and sufferings produce something of value in us. It produces endurance. It produces strength. That's not crazy talk by James. This is, not, this is not some masochistic statement by him. This is not some crazy talk by him. You see, God's aim at, in testing, God's, God's um, desire, his goal in allowing trials and suffering is not to afflict us, but to refine us. It's not to tear us down, but, but to build us up. It's not to weaken, but to strengthen. The author and Bible commentator, Warren Wiersbe, writes this. The only way the Lord can develop patience and character in our lives is through trials. Endurance can't be attained by reading a book listening to a sermon, or even praying a prayer. We must go through the difficulties of life, trust God, and obey Him. That leads to verse 4. So if verse 3 talks about the, the testing of our faith that produces this endurance, verse 4 says, let that steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let steadfastness have its full effect. I mean, see this, that, 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 that trials result in endurance, yes, and that endurance is the staying power. It's the steadfastness that James is talking about. This is the quality that enables you to stand firm. This is the quality that enables you to stay on your feet, to endure when the storms come, when the difficulties ensue, when the pressure mounts. This is the quality, the staying power, the steadfastness that is produced in you by your trusting God through the trial. This is ultimately how you and I will be matured. This is ultimately how we will be perfected and completed using James' language here. And, and, and here's, here's not a popular message for you. Here's, here's something that you won't hear. Um, you're weak. I'm, I'm weak. We are weak. I mean, Nike is not putting that on a t-shirt. We're weak. But here's the beauty of that weakness. See, when you know you're weak, you're actually strong. Stay with me on that logic. I mean, when you know you're weak, you're actually strong. Because here's, here's the beauty of that. This, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is the paradox that, that in your weakness, in your natural weakness, you begin to rely on supernatural strength. You trust in the strength that God brings. When you are weak, you are actually strong. Here's the thing. When you think you're strong, you're actually weak. And that's the paradox that we are strong because of God who is at work in us 
building in us an endurance. And he accomplishes that by taking us through, by allowing us to experience the things that we wouldn't want to, that bring difficulty. Whether it's relational, emotional, spiritual, physical, whatever, whatever difficulty and struggle that might be, God allows it because he knows something that we do not, that it is for our good, that he's building in us this endurance because we're naturally weak. But in that paradox of being naturally weak and being dependent on the supernatural strength, there's a lesson there. Natural weakness and supernatural strength are both at work in you. Both of those things, this natural weakness that you have and the supernatural strength that you depend on, depend on God for, they're both at work in you. That's the lesson. And how do we learn that lesson? Man, suffering is one heck of a teacher. God is growing you. He's bringing you to maturity, to, to, to the person that he has made you to be. And much to our chagrin and much to our disappointment and displeasure, he uses suffering to get there. Allow me to state the obvious. Allow me to state something that we all know. God sees what we do not. The end result of that trial is spiritual value. That's what he's growing in you and in me through the difficulty. There's a spiritual value. There's a spiritual depth. There's a maturity of faith that he's growing, that he does that through these trials, through these, these difficulties that we would run from. On the other side of suffering is strength. On the other side of, of, of difficulty is endurance. And all of that ultimately leads to our perfection. And not perfection like you're sinless or perfection like you're spotless, not that kind of perfection, but the perfection that the scriptures talk about is, is a wholeness, is a completion that you're brought through, a maturity of sorts. So this is why even the Apostle Peter can echo the words of James and echo the words of Paul in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter can, can say this with confidence. He can promise this. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, he will say this, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself, Restore, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. What a beautiful promise from the scriptures. What a beautiful promise when you look at life, at your struggles, through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of what God is doing. And to close our time together, we just, just want to kind of wrap this up. I want to I try and put a bow on it for us. I mean, the... This day, you might feel confused or dismayed or, or in some difficulty. Take heart, my friends, because God is not confused. He knows exactly what he's doing, what he's allowing more correctly, and what, what, what's coming into your life that he allows to happen because he uses that negative, that difficulty for something beautiful, something good, something profoundly valuable. James is not saying throw a party for your pain. That's not what he's saying here, but, but choose to be joyful because you know that God's work of refinement is, is, is at work. His purposes of endurance is at work in you. You know, when we began today, just a few minutes ago, I repeated those famous words of Jesus in John chapter 16. In this world, you will have trouble. But I didn't finish that verse. There's more to it. Jesus finishes that statement by saying, take heart, because I have overcome the world. Take heart from that, my friends. I mean, the, the leader and, and the martyr James knows one day, gone, will, will be, will be our pain. 
Gone will be our suffering. Gone will be our loneliness and our tears and our difficulty. All of the darkness will be put to flight one day. And in that day, we will know that God not only defeats the darkness, not only defeats the suffering, but has always had control over it and was looking to produce good from it. See, my comfort in trials, my comfort in suffering is this, that what God has said is true. That's my comfort in trials. That's my comfort in suffering. That what God has promised, that what God has said is true. I mean, that, that, that it was Jesus's brokenness for our wholeness. That's what Jesus came to do. This is the crux of the matter. This is the glue that holds this entire conversation together. That this is what Christ has come, lived, died for, risen from the dead to do. He makes all of what was whole. He makes all of that was whole originally, then became broken. He makes it whole again. He makes all the wrongs right. His brokenness for our wholeness, his physical death for our spiritual life. And this, my friends, is the gospel. So if you're here today and, and you're a follower of Christ this morning, you have, you've turned from your sin, you have embraced Jesus by faith, you've put your faith in the life-saving death and glorious resurrection that Jesus gives you, that he gifts humanity. You've put your faith in that. You are a follower of his. I pray that this has lit a fire afresh in your hearts to recognize that the suffering he's allowing, the struggle, whether it's physical, emotional, whatever it might be, he's at work for something good, something beautiful, something profound, something of value in your life. And if you've joined us today, whether you're on Facebook or, or you're, you're on site on Zoom watching us today, man, we are so glad that you're here. Christ Community Church is so thankful that you are listening to the word. We want you to know that you are always welcome here, whether you are a follower of Christ or you're not a follower of Christ. And for this morning, the message bears weight for you also, my friend. For you have not have trusted Jesus, if you have not have put your faith and your trust in the only way of hope, in the only way of, of true peace and real joy, in the only way of growing, then we would call you, we would beckon you to do that. And not only we, us, me, but the scriptures. Jesus calls out to you. James says, here, man, cast your burdens on him. Put your, your faith in him. That's where you'll find steadfast strength. That's where you'll find hope and endurance to get through the trial you're in. You want to get through the trial? Run to Jesus. That's what the scriptures would call us to do. So if you're not a follower of his today, man, you can be today. You can be before this call gets finished, before you finish reading, before lunch, you can trust in him. That's between you and the Lord. You can put your faith in him by crying out to him. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to, I'm going to close our time together in a word of prayer now. But, but this is the gospel, my friends. There are two kinds of people listening to this message. Those that have put their faith in the Savior. Those that have trusted in the only way of salvation, in real hope, in Jesus, and those that have not yet done that. And now's your opportunity to do it. You see, Matt Chandler, one of my favorite pastors, has said this, and, and I think it's beautifully said. He said, the first moments of glory, the very first moments of glory, will make years of suffering vanish. Pray with me. Father, we are so grateful for today. We're so grateful that, Lord, not, not because there's pain and not because there's struggle. We're not grateful for those things, but we're grateful, Lord, in those things. We are thankful in those things because we know from the testimony of your word and from how you've uh, lived and, and acted and treated and 
guided all of your servants that what we're going through is for our good. What we're going through in some ways building us, building us up is, is, is a value in us that we don't yet see. Father, we thank you for that and we trust you for it. So I pray that today, that in the hearing of your word and in, and in being confronted with the words of scripture, the very words of your mouth, I pray that hearts and lives were changed. I pray that the Holy Spirit has used this time, even if it's digitally connected, has used this time to encourage, to strengthen, to, uh, to, um, to build up the body of Christ and to draw people unto yourself. Lord Jesus, we are eternally grateful for your sacrifice, your voluntary, joyful sacrifice for me, for us. And we ask, Lord, that, that you would hear those that are crying out to you now and you would draw them to you and you would confirm their faith and build their faith that they would trust you, Jesus. Thank you for today, Lord. Thank you for the words of James. Thank you for the example of the scriptures. May we day by day grow in the good things that you allow and in the difficult things that you allow. We love you and we thank you for loving us the way you do. It's in the beautiful and precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurchcom.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 